Before I um, read these words, um, let me just introduce uh, what I want to talk about today. Again, the PowerPoint is on. You know, um, I don't know about you, but looks can be deceiving. Have a look at um, this uh, railway line here. Uh, we have two black bars on that uh, railway line. Which one is longer than the other one? Most of you would probably say it's the top one, right? That that one's longer than the other? No, they're exactly the same length. Or look at this picture here. Um, here you have um, two uh, collection of circles. Now, which one of those red balls are larger than the other? Oh, see, you're smart. You're smarter than me. And they're actually exactly the same. Although, if you look at the one on your right, it looks a bit larger, doesn't it? Um, or what about this? Uh, I brought myself today uh, a bar of gold. How much? I can auction this off this morning. How, how much do you, do you want to pay for this? I mean, this glitters like gold, and it's. Do you how? What? Who? Give me five hundred. Give me a thousand dollars for this bar of gold. Now, looks can be deceiving. I mean, it, it's golden color. It sparkles like gold, but it's not gold, just a piece of wood. Uh, looks can be deceiving. And, you know, so often that's true of us as individuals. Um, I don't know if you remember the story in the Old Testament where God wanted to have a new king in Israel. And God told Samuel to go down to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse and to go down there and to visit this man who was a farmer. He had lots of sheep and to anoint the new king of Israel. And what Jesse did is he paraded all of his tall and handsome and older boys in front of Samuel. And Samuel looked at all of these guys and thought, well, these guys, I mean, they seem to cut it out. You know, they look like someone that could be the next king of Israel. I mean, they're tall, dark, handsome. I mean, they could be the next king of Israel. But then God reminded um, Samuel and said to him, Samuel, you know, you might look on the outside, but looks can be deceiving. I look at a person's heart, what's on the inside. And so eventually there came this short, ruddy boy who was called out from the sheep pens, uh, out from the fields, and uh, God told um, Samuel, now that's going to be your king. He didn't look like a king, but it was out was in the inside. Now, as it's true for individuals, it's also true for churches. Today, we're going to look at two churches, the churches of Sardis and Laodicea. Now, these churches, um, you know, they were part of those uh, large group of churches that we've been looking at. And the problem with these churches, and the reason why we're going to look at these two churches together this morning, is because these churches had exactly the same problem um, as we have with this bar of gold, right? Looks can be deceiving. It might look all really good on the outside, but what was on the inside was not good at all. When you got below the surface, things were a whole different story. They were not at all what they appeared to be. So let's see what Jesus says about these churches in Revelation chapter 3. 
We're going to begin reading at the first verse, and then we're going to uh, work through um, to the second half of chapter 3 as well. Listen to these words. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but I will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Then down to verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold or nor hot. I wish that you were either, one or the other. But because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for every person in this place. You know us, you hear us, and we ask for your help. Show yourself in the word that is preached today, and when everything is said and done, that you, Jesus, the Lord of our life, the head over all things to this church, that you will be pleased, that you will be glorified, and that these, your people, every single one of them, by your Holy Spirit, will be helped today. And that is our prayer. And we say amen in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's have a close look at these two churches. Remember that this is not a history lesson. As we look at these churches, we should be asking ourselves the question, is our church like this? What about me? Am I like this? Those are the questions that we've been asking every time as we've looked at these seven letters that um, Jesus wrote to the churches uh, in Asia Minor. And so as, we, as you've heard those words already read, and as I explain what the Spirit is saying to those churches, 
Listen very intently yourself to what the Spirit is saying to you about this church and also about your own life. Now the church of Sardis was in one of the most glorious cities in Asia uh, Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey today. Uh, unlike many of the other um, Unlike uh, many of the other seven cities, uh, Sardis had a long history. I mean, it was established around 1,500 years before the birth of Christ. And so it was a large city. It was a busy city. It became the capital of the wealthy and powerful Lydian kingdom. Much of the wealth in that city came from all the commerce and trade that happened. And also, Lydia, uh, Sardis was known as a place where, um, I mean, it had a huge wool industry. A lot of clothing was made there. Sardis was also a wealthy city. It was the first city to uh, mint uh, gold and silver coins. Now that city was also built on a very high plateau uh, next to Mount Tamales, about 1,500 feet above the lower valley. Um, like many such hills in that area, this plateau would have steep cliffs on three sides, and the fourth side was attached uh, to Mount Tamales. As such, this city was a natural fortress. It prided itself that this was a fortable city. I mean, it was an unbeatable, mighty stronghold. But although they might have prided themselves on that, as we know, pride often comes before a fall. And the city did fall. In 546 years before the birth of Christ, one of Cyrus' uh, contingents of troops climbed the unscalable cliff and after 14 days laying siege on that city, the city fell. 300 years later, in 214 years before the birth of Christ, the city of Sardis suffered another major defeat when Antiochus XI invaded the city to crush a rebellion. I mean, this city appeared like a mighty fortress. But looks can be deceiving. The people of Sardis, they worship Artemis, known as Diana of the Romans, uh, the daughter of Zeus and the twin of Apollo. She was the goddess of the hunt, the moon, and fertility. And the people, they, they, they worship nature. They focused on the fertility cycle of how death turns into life. What is important to understand, and here you see the temple of Artemis, um, it was built, and they started building this, this temple. But an important fact to remember as we look at this letter to Sardis is that this temple never was finished. To this day, it's never been complete. Although they started building it, they never finished it. So if you look at this city, the city of Sardis, I mean, it had a great past. It had a great history of wealth and fame, of might and power. It still had a lot of its wealth. But most of the glory days of the distant past were gone. Looks can be deceiving. And the church in Sardis was no better than the city of Sardis. Listen to what Jesus says about them. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. But in fact, you are dead. In all the other letters, when Jesus um, says, I know your deeds, he often 
um, compliments the churches. He talks about their strengths, what they're doing well. Remember the letter to the church in Ephesus where Jesus said to them, I know your deeds, how you have hard work and perseverance. But Sardis was a whole other matter. There were deeds, but it was all a spiritual smokescreen. They had a reputation of being alive, but in fact, they were dead. Like the city of Sardis, they had a reputation of being a fortress, but in fact, they were weak. Looks can be deceiving. It looked like they were alive, but in fact, they were dead. And Jesus goes on to explain their deadness. Like the unfinished temple of Artemis, this church had deeds, but these deeds were incomplete. They started to follow Jesus, but they didn't finish. They started to live a godly life, but they didn't complete it. They had all the best intentions of doing good, but they did not complete what they had started. Worse yet, these believers in Sardis, they accommodated themselves to the secular world around them. Look at verse 4. We're told in that verse that they had soiled their clothes. Whenever you read about people soiling their clothes in the Bible, it often refers to two things. On the one hand, it refers to idolatry, you know, the worship of other gods. And secondly, when you soil your clothes, you are involving yourself in sexual immorality. And so here, Jesus uses the image of the, the major industry that they had there, the industry of making clothes, their wool industry. And Jesus says, you have soiled your clothes. In other words, you have seeped yourself in idolatry and immorality, sexual immorality. And all of that was surrounded the cult of the worship of the goddess Artemis. In any event, this church, which appeared to be alive, was in fact dead. And things were not much better with the church of Laodicea. Like Sardis, Laodicea was a city of wealth and fame. It was founded about 270 years before Christ, and it was named after the Seleucid king Antiochus II, who named the, wife, uh, the city after his wife. Her name was Laodicea. And the city was uh, situated in the fertile Lycus River Valley, and for the next 150 years, this city grew in prominence, even being, because it was situated between two major trade routes. It eventually became a banking center and an increasingly wealthy city. Uh, this city was also known, like Sardis, for its uh, great clothing that they could make. Uh, they had some of the softest raven black wool that you could find in the world of that day. Uh, this city was also famous for its medicine. They had a school of medicine connected with the temple of Menkarau, the god of healing. Uh, they developed a compound for curing eye diseases that they called Phrygian powder, and people would use that powder and like solve, and they would put it on their eyes so that they would be able to cure their illnesses. And that Phrygian powder uh, brought a lot of fame and wealth into this city. There's a couple of other things you need to know about the city of Laodicea. First, the city, like the city of Philadelphia, had lots and lots of earthquakes. 
There was one in 600 in years uh, A.D. It virtually destroyed the city. But unlike Philadelphia, Laodicea wanted no financial help from Rome. Remember when we looked at the city of uh, the Church of Philadelphia? I mean, I mean, they wanted the financial aid from Rome, but not Laodicea. Instead, the wealthy citizens of that city, they said, you know, we can do it on our own. We could build our city. They had this kind of smugness about themselves. They didn't need one thing from their government. Second, the city of Laodicea did not, even ha- did not have their own water supply. And so what they did is that they would transport the water uh, about 10 kilometers away through these aqueducts. Um, they had these hot springs in a city called Denezeli, uh, 10 kilometers to the south, and they would pipe the water uh, from those hot springs. The problem is, however, is that when the water finally ended up in Laodicea, the water was no longer hot. It was lukewarm. And because of the huge amounts of calcium carbonate in the water, this lukewarm water often made the people so sick that they would continually vomit. They would throw up. Well, like the church in Sardis, the church in Laodicea was no better than the city of Laodicea. Uh, Like the city, it had grown fat and complacent, satisfied with all of its wealth, but any spiritual depth was missing. I mean, the people um, of this church, they were fence-sitters. And Jesus makes a judgment on this church. Listen to what he says. I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm, just like the water that you drink. Neither hot nor cold. And so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I mean, Jesus compares these Christians of Laodicea to the lukewarm water that they so often detested. Oh, if only they had those hot springs of the Heriopolis, the church would have been known for their spiritual healing. Or if only if they had the cool springs of Colossae. The church would have been known for their refreshing, life-giving ministry, but instead they were neither hot nor cold. Therefore, Jesus calls these Christians lukewarm. They sat on the fence. They were neither this way or that way, just in the middle. I don't know if you noticed it, but Jesus identifies himself as the Amen when he introduced himself um, to the church of Laodicea, the Amen, the faithful and true witness. The word amen is a word of agreement. That's why we always say amen after our prayers because after we've said a number of things, we say amen. And it's good to do say that even together because what we're doing is we're saying, no, we agree with what you've prayed about. But this church of Laodicea was not able to say amen to what Jesus told them to do. When it came to obedience, they knew it all, but they didn't show it in their actions. Their deeds were lifeless, empty, dead, just like that lukewarm water that they used to drink in Laodicea. And in fact, this church made God sick. This church was not only lukewarm, but they were also self-sufficient. They didn't need God. Jesus tells them, yeah, you say you're rich. I've acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. I mean, that was their smugness. 
The church had the attitude, I'm rich. I have money. I have everything I need. I've got a good income. I don't need God. <laughs> I don't need any help. Just like the city refused help from Rome when the government offered them help after the earthquakes, so too these Christians believed that material wealth was the only thing they needed. They didn't need the Romans, and they didn't need God. They can take care of it themselves. But looks can be deceiving. Although this church thought that they were rich, not needing a thing, it looks so good on the outside, but on the inside, well, listen to what Jesus says to them. But you don't realize. You might think you're rich, but you're wretched. You're pitiful. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. You're spiritually bankrupted, and you don't even know it. And that brings us to the central question that we need to ask when we look at these letters. We need to ask ourselves the question, is our church like this? Is the church in the West, are we like this? Am I like this? You look at your own heart. It might look so good on the outside, but what's on the inside? When people look at this church, when they look at you, are looks deceiving? The sad reality is that these last two letters are in very many ways a perfect parallel to where we are at as the church in the West in the 21st century. In Europe, in America, and even here in Australia. I mean, we become self-satisfied in many ways with our own success. Oh, I know this church might be very small, but just look around us in so much of the Western Christianity today. You know, we have these big churches. We have beautiful buildings, and it looks all alive. I mean, you got the music, you got the fanfare, you got the lights, you got the budgets. But is it? What's at the core of our churches? Really? Let's be honest, dreadfully honest. Among the vast majority of Christians in our day today, there's a half-hearted commitment. We see it in our churches. And I see it, I just got back from New South Wales and, and spending a week among the churches there in, in that state. And, and I see it time and time again in our churches, but in, in Christianity all around us. People like to be a member of a church. They're not even committed to attending every single week as they gather for worship. Oh yes, they might pride themselves that they have lots of wealth and they can do whatever they want in terms of supplying for their needs and their family, but they're very often reluctant to give the full tithe to the Lord or getting involved in ministry or serving or being a witness to our Savior throughout the week. So many Christians, they just sit on the fence, neither hot nor cold, just lukewarm. Yeah, we attend church, but that's about all. But where's the passion for Jesus? Where's the passion for the gospel? And then there's that spiritual smugness. Yes, we say we need God for everything, but we'd like to be self-sufficient. I mean, we can fix it ourselves. 
you know, I, I, I just saw it, you know, even um, this morning I was, as, as, I, as I opened up a, um, a text that I received from, um, you know, a, a young couple. They live in Canada. Their daughter is seriously ill. She is so sick. And, um, you know, she's, she's got cancer ripping her whole body uh, apart. Um, she's only 14 years of age. And it's just very sad when I think of what they've gone through. I mean, I married this couple, and now I see them struggling with their 14-year-old daughter. And this has been going on for a year and a half. And then I opened her text this morning, and I was reading that text. And she went on and on and on, talking about how the doctors did this, and the doctors did that, and the cancer treatments did this, and, and we did this, that, and the other thing. And there was not one comment in there Perhaps God was in it. Maybe God was in it. Has she not forgotten that last week the church held a 24-hour vigil for their daughter and prayed and prayed to God? And now she is rejoicing because all the treatments that she received through the medicine healed her daughter and made the cancer start to disappear out of her body but not one word was given to the fact that they had spent time in prayer to God I contrast um, that to a text that I I'm just going aside a little bit now it just lays on my heart a little bit we've got a little bit more time today so I can do this you're not singing so you get to listen to me a little bit more but contrast that to a, a text that I got this morning from a pastor in Ontario. Just as I walked into the building this morning, I got this text. And Bart said to me, he says, um, I have a young man in my church. And he wants to get in touch with you. And I said, and, and he said, because he said, you prayed for him once. And he was healed. Yeah, I remember David. He was four years old. I was called to travel to Toronto. It's about an hour and a half away, and I, I went to that, um, I, I went to that hospital, and and you know I had never met David in my life, but I knew of his parents because his mother would sing once in a while in the church that I was planting at that time, and so I, I got to meet his parents, Paul and Diane, and I said, so what's the problem with your your son? And they said, well, our son. The doctors say that we have to prepare for his death because he's brain dead. And I said, and they said, but, and they were crying and they were weeping. I said, we've just talked to the, the hospital chaplain and the hospital chaplain has said, you know, that, that we, we, can't, we, can't, we can't do anything more for this boy. I said, so I said to Paul and I said to Diane, but I said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, the doctors say that if he wakes up, he's going to be severely paralyzed. And I said, well, yeah, I know that. But I said, what do you want? I said, he said, well, we want our boy to be well, completely healed. I said, what about all his this paralyzed stuff? And they said, we want none of that. And so I went up with Dad and I... I just went to see David and 
I, I laid my hands on them, and I said, well, let's, let's talk to God about this. I don't know what God, but I know God is able to heal this little boy. And, um, you know, here, here you have this limp boy, no brain activity anymore. And we just laid our hands on him and just prayed. said, God, will you heal this boy? And will you raise him up? And when he, he wakes up, can he have no more, no, no paralysis, you know, no, no paralysis or anything in his life? And we just laid that before God just lay in the heart of the parents and did that a half an hour later with mom and as we walked up there to do exactly the same thing I said to the nurse I said so how's David now I said well you know there's no change we heard him cough a little while ago but that you know that sometimes happens and so we I prayed with Diane and we prayed for little David and we um, just did exactly the same thing and, and just thank God that we also David coughed Two days later, I, I came back to the hospital and just wanted to see how the family was doing. I, I didn't know this family because they lived, they lived about five hours away, so I just had heard about this little boy, and I just went there because his uncle and aunt said, can you go down there and just be with this family? So I did. So I went back two days later. I went early in the morning, got to the hospital. I went up to the intensive care unit, and, and I looked for David, and David was gone, and my heart sank. <laughs> I thought, David, so I, I went to the nurses and I said, what happened? They said, where's David? I said, well, David, oh, he's not here anymore. He's three floors down. He's in the regular children's ward. I said, what? Yeah. So I went down to the regular children's ward and I, I went down there and I found David and I just sat beside his bed. And as I sat beside his bedside, I, I waited for him to wake up. Remember, it was 6.30 in the morning. David woke up, and he looked at me. He says, I know who you are. I said, who am I? He says, you're the minister, you're the pastor that prayed for me. <laughs> and now, 35 years later, David wants to get in touch with me. You know, what's, what's that all about? He wants to get in touch with me because he says, you know, the Lord healed me back then. Right? I sometimes think, you know, in our spiritual smugness, we, can, we look at our wealth, we look at our medicine, and we look at everything that we have, and we say, but is God really doing this? Where are we giving glory? So we see in our world today, we see this half-hearted commitment, the sitting on the fence, and so much in our world today, we see this spiritual smugness. And the fact is, is that all of this makes God really sick. You think you're alive, but you're dead. You think you're rich, but you're poor. You're wretched. You're empty. And that's quite an indictment against the church. But that is also something we as a church in the 21st century, you and I, we need to hear. Now that's the bad news. But I got some good news. All is not lost. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus offers hope to these churches. Things can turn around. For the church back then, but also for the church of today. Here we see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he loves the church. And he is the only one that can resurrect the dead, even dead churches. He can make bitter water sweet. 
And Jesus comes to the church of that day and he comes to the church of our day and he says, wake up. Wake up to the reality of your wretchedness and poverty and come back to life. Hear the words of Jesus. He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains as they're about to die. Therefore, remember what you have received and heard, obeyed and repent. In other words, Jesus says to us today, he says, all is not dead yet. There's a little life yet remaining. And we see that happening even in our churches here in Australia. Yes, we might have seen Christianity, you know, be on the decrease in Australia, you know, over the last, you know, three or four decades. But there is still life in our churches. There's still a few people in our churches that have Jesus very much at the core of who they are. And we've got to see that life begin to sprout and to spread throughout our churches. Strengthen what remains. Hold on to the truth of God's word, what you have received and heard. And if you realize when you read God's word that maybe you've got to change a few things that you do in the church or change a few things that you do in your own life, then do it. Repent. See, the solution to any dying church is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Listen to what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire. Not the gold that you find in the banks. Not the gold that you get from your income, from your job. I want you to get the gold that I can give to you that's refined by fire so you can become rich. I want you to have white clothes to wear, not that beautiful black clothing that you can get from all of these specialty stores that you have around here, you know, in Laodicea or in Sardis, or we can go down to our shops today. Don't go out there and get all this fashion clothes that you can get and just be dressed in all this finery, but be dressed in the white clothes that Jesus can give to you. And white clothes represent a life that has been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. You know, being clothed with his righteousness and his goodness. Wear the white clothes that can cover your shameful nakedness and come to me and get the salve, right? Oh, they had their Phrygian powder, but Jesus says, that stuff's not going to help you. Come and get the salve that I can give to you that you can put on your eyes so that you can see clearly how you ought to live. Jesus reminds them and he reminds us that the needs of the soul are only met in him. He only can give us the true riches. He is the only one that can clothe our shameful nakedness. And the healing that he provides is the only thing that will enable us to see. Look at the image in verse 20. Jesus is there and he's standing at the door. Not at the door of your heart. But he's standing at the door of the church. And he's knocking. He's knocking at the door of this church. As he was knocking on the door of that church. And Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens up the door, I will come in and eat with him. I'll have fellowship with him and he with me. And here we see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ as he stands at the door of our churches and he's knocking. He says, I want to come in and I want to have fellowship with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ coming to the church like Laodicea, that was lukewarm. Or the church in Sardis that was dead. 
or the church in Ephesus that had no love, or the church of Pergamum and Thyatira that were all seeped in all kinds of false doctrines. And Jesus comes to our church, and he knocks, and he stands at the door. He wants to come in, and he wants to have fellowship with us. Will we let him in? Will we? Will we repent of any lukewarmness that might be there? Our deadness? Our lack of love? Our lack of commitment? Our accommodation to a secular world? Will we? If we don't, judgment will come. And Jesus makes that very clear. He says, if you do not wake, I'm going to come to you like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come. And the people of Sardis knew what that was all about. Because they knew that there was a time where they thought that they were a fortified city. But they were ransacked by thieves. And they didn't even see it coming. Or as Jesus tells the church in Laodicea, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And they knew what that meant. See, Jesus is serious about these things. He wants us to be not lukewarm, but he wants to be on fire for him, to be passionate. He wants us to put first things first. Otherwise, dead churches will be removed. Lukewarm churches will be spit out. But it doesn't have to be that way. Remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we repent, if we take serious what Jesus is saying to us, if we remain true to him, we will have a new identity, a new citizenship, and a new future. We look at what Jesus promises. He talks about those people in those churches that will stay f- true to Jesus and follow his ways. He says, they will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. Isn't that what you want to see about this church? Isn't that what you want to see about your life? That you will walk with Jesus, dressed in his whiteness, his clothing that he provides, covering our shameful nakedness and knowing the forgiveness that we have in him. Won't you want to walk with Jesus knowing that he looks at you and he says, you are worthy? Jesus says, I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but I will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. That is true of you if you are going to be a faithful and true witness to Jesus. And isn't that wonderful to know that one day when you and I, we come to the end of our life and we stand there before God, our Father in heaven. And as we stand there, Jesus looks at you and he says, this one, that one, this one, this one one of my true followers. This is one of us. This is one of our family. I'm looking forward to that day when I will stand before my Father in heaven and by God's grace that Jesus would say that of me. This will be true of you if you are faithful to Jesus. Your name will be written in the book of life and you'll be dressed in white and your life will no longer be stained by the world but washed clean by Jesus. And if that was not good enough, listen to this promise that Jesus gives to the church of Laodicea. He who overcomes, to the one who overcomes lukewarmness, to the one who overcomes self-sufficiency, to the one who overcomes spiritual smugness, I will give a right to sit with me 
on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. Yes, if we are faithful to Jesus, we will reign with Christ today and for eternity. So those, my friends, are the letters. Have you listened? What has the Spirit been saying to you about your life? Don't hear what I have to say, but what has the Spirit been saying to you about your life? And what has the Spirit been saying to you about Wishart Community Church or the Christian church here in Australia? Are you listening? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for this opportunity that we could have been under the instruction of your word. Or we could have just looked at these seven letters over the last uh, four months and listened to what you have been saying about the church of that day and what you by your Holy Spirit is saying to the church of today. Lord, give us ears to listen, give us hearts to respond, and give us wills to obey so that we would be counted among those who are worthy, dressed, Lord, in that white clothing that you provide and reigning with you today and forever. And so guide us along in our journey, Lord, so that we may continue to honor you in all that we do. And we pray this in your glorious name. Amen.